Good morning. My name is Spencer. I am one of the pastors here. We're going to be in Exodus uh, chapter 18 today. Uh, so if you, if you have a blue Bible around you, that's on page 34. You can follow along with us. The text will also be on the screen. So you know when you've got family that's coming to town for a week, or if you go, you know, if you're not from here, you go back and visit family for a week, that that one week can sometimes feel like three or four weeks, because there's a lot that gets packed in in one week. And I'm not saying it's always bad, it's, it's not. Like, but there's a lot of emotions that can get packed into one week. There's a lot of conversations, and not just like that conversation, but it's linked to like a conversation from two years ago and ten years ago. Like, there's all kinds of things that are happening when family comes to town. That's Exodus 18. <laughs> That's what we're going to see today, is that Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes to visit, and there's a lot that's packed into this chapter that we're going to walk through together. And as we walk through it towards the end, I want us to help, help us see three helpful truths that comes from Jethro's visit, and how those truths still apply to us as Christians today. And then we're going to end in one overarching theme that ties this story to ours. So I want to pray for us, then we're going to walk through this together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us receive your word, that you would help us be present, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, and that is by your power and your power alone. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to jump straight into it. Verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So the last time we saw Jethro was when Moses was leaving there to go back to Egypt to respond to God's call to lead the people out of Egypt. And Jethro gave his blessing to Moses. And now we're going to see him here again. It goes on in verse 2. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. Which, pause for a moment. If you've been following closely with us in Exodus, you might be wondering, when did that happen? When did Zipporah and the boys just disappear? We don't know. Exodus was not concerned. And telling us that part of the story. It's possible that when things got heated between Moses and Pharaoh, that he said, you got to leave town for a bit. It's possible that when they left initially out of Egypt, that he sent her and the boys to uh, Jethro to tell the good news. It's possible that the whole throwing the foreskins incident that happened was just too much. And he just said, you got to leave for a bit. We, don't, we really don't know when this happened or how this happened. We just know that at some point he sends them away. And now they're coming back. So, we need to get more information about his sons. The name of one was Gershom. For he said, I've been, a so I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And that's very common in the Old Testament. It's very common in Bible times to name your child with meaning. So that... These names have meaning. Gershom sounds like the Hebrew word for sojourner. That's a wanderer who has no home. Uh, and then Eleazar is kind of a prophetic name. This is God, my help in the Hebrew. And it's pointing forward to what is happening and what has happened. So, on to verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, 
I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Which, upon hearing that, had to be some excitement. That he's going to be able to, I mean, we don't know how long it's been, but he's going to get to see his wife and his two sons. This reunion is getting ready to happen. And here's the reunion in verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. That's it. That's the reunion. You all know, you've seen the soldiers coming back home videos where he gets off the plane, his wife and his kids are at the fence, and he's excited, and then he just runs right past them and then hugs his father-in-law, kisses him on both cheeks, bows down. It's odd. It's like, why? Like, <laughs> I'm sure that there was a reunion between him and his family. Uh, this is not mentioned here, and that begs the question, why is Jethro the focus of this chapter? And we're going to see how and why that happens. So, continues. And they asked each other, this is Moses and Jethro. They asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So he updates him. He's not going to believe what happened, how we, were, how we left Egypt and how Pharaoh came back for us at the Red Sea. But God divided the Red Sea, and we safely went to the other side, and then he brought the waters down upon our enemies. And we've had some good times. We've had some hard times so far in the wilderness. We've had some water shortages, but God provided, and he's teaching us to trust him. Some food shortages, but now he's raining down manna from heaven. We've got some grumblers and some complainers, but we're working on that too. Here's all the good. Here's all the bad. He's recounting all of this. And then in verse 9, it says, And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with him. And here's the significance of Jethro here. Jethro, as we taught earlier in Exodus, is a Midianite. He is not an Israelite. And he's a priest of Midian. And probably not at all a priest of God, the gods of the Midianites. And he declares here, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. That an outsider sees the work of God and says, now I know. This is profound. Now, that doesn't mean that the Midianite people in the books of the Bible that you continue to read are going to follow suit with Jethro. They, they don't. Uh, but Jethro taps into something that the others can't see. He recognizes what Pharaoh and the Egyptians could not. When God was displaying his power, Pharaoh and the Egyptians could not see it. That's like the repeated phrasing that we saw earlier in Exodus was the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they didn't, so much so that they came back to claim the people of God after they left. That the Amalekites, which we saw last week, have certainly heard about what God has done for his people. And they don't know, but Jethro does, that you, the Lord, are greater than all the gods. It's a cool picture of an outsider. Believing who this God is. And then now, 
you get to participate in something that Moses declared earlier in Exodus to Pharaoh. In Exodus 10.25, he said, telling Pharaoh, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. And now, that's happening. And Jethro gets to be a part of that. In verse 12, it says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. That a Midianite outsider gets to participate in this joyous celebration and worshiping the Lord. This is a very cool picture that we're going to get into more next week. Now, that is part one of Jethro's visit. There's a whole part two that we're about to see in a moment, which is Jethro witnessing something that is happening and then giving advice to Moses. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. So, pick up in verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. So, it was common in that time for if you were the leader, and Moses is the leader, he is the prophet, he's the man between, in the middle between God and his people, that if you're the leader, people come to you Wanting you to judge their cases. You see that here. We continue to see this throughout the Old Testament. Even Solomon was seen as a judge. They would come and ask for him to weigh in on things. This is common in their time. But it says that he was giving judgment on issues from morning until evening. Now we don't know if that was every day. But it certainly had to be some part of the regular schedule that from morning till evening... He's bringing judgments upon judgments upon judgments for the people. And that is exhausting. I have three children, seven, five, and three. And every now and then, I like to give my wife a break and just say, just, just, just go. Go get your nails done. I'll see you at dinner. I'm going to wash the kids today. And as that happens, when you have a seven, five, and three-year-old, and they're at their house all day, they're going to have arguments, right? They're going to have disputes. A lot of times they're bringing them to me and I'm actually pushing them away. Not literally, but I'm, I'm just saying, you, you, no, I'm not going to settle every dispute that you have. You're going to learn to figure this out yourselves because I don't want to be, I don't want to raise kids that are the kind of adults that when they get to college, they're having to call their parents to settle a dispute with a professor. Okay, I'm not doing that. You're going to learn how to have conversations and work through things. But every now and then they're seven, five, and three. And I've got to settle a dispute. And I listen to both sides. And I'm the judge. And I make the judgment call on how this is going to go down. Who's going to get disciplined. All, all of that. And by the time my wife gets home at dinner, I'm tired. That's tiring. And that's three children. That's not tens of thousands of people that Moses was leading. I mean, that's, I mean you can see some of the disputes they had in the Old Testament law. That... I let my neighbor borrow, borrow this mule, and now he's brought it back, and it's got a broken leg, and that was, that was the only mule we have. What are we going to do, Moses? I think my neighbor is having an affair with my wife. Moses helped settle this dispute. Those are some of the things you can see from the Old Testament. All the way down to some of the stuff that I'm sure he also had to deal with. The Reubenites are getting all the good water and all the petty stuff that would have been brought from great to small. Moses heard every one of those from morning till evening. 
That's exhausting. As a pastor who does conflict resolution, that is probably the most exhausting part of pastoral ministry. And if you're a group leader, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is hard. From morning until evening, he's doing this. And Jethro witnesses this and goes, oh, no, 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 no. This ain't good. So, verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you were doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Now, it's a classic father-in-law move to phrase your suggestion as a question. <laughs> you know where this is going. What are you doing all day and all night? What is this? And Moses answers, and Moses said to his father-in-law, verse 15, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and the other, and I make, make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses just gives the obvious answer, because I'm the leader, and they just keep coming to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm learning what God's will is for the people, and, they, and I have to tell them what it is, and I'm, I'm, the, I'm the guy. And Jethro's like, this, this is unsustainable. So in verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to burn yourself out, Moses. And, and I, in teaching team this week, I used the word burnout, and I watched Chet have a conniption. He was just twitching. I was like, what are you doing? Like, and he's like, I, I can't stand that word burnout. Because it gets very overused in Christian circles. I was like, that's a fair point. I want to fight him on it because I think that we don't need to lose that word. I will fight for words that I think that matter. Because burnout still is a thing. But there is a real thing with Christians that overuse burnout as an excuse to basically say, I don't want to do a thing anymore. As we're going to see in a moment, that he doesn't actually quit what he's called to do here. He's actually going to do this in a more sustainable level. But burnout is real. And you really can crash and burn. And Jethro sees this. And he says, you're, you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to burn yourself out. This isn't good. This isn't sustainable for you to listen to this all day and all day and all day. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear the people out who are involved in this. You're going to have to change. This is too heavy for you. Which, praise God that there are people like Jethro in our lives that are willing to say difficult things to keep us from crashing and burning. You should praise God for the people like that in your life. I've had some of the other elders, Matt or Chet, step in and just look at my life and say, I think you need to rethink this. This is unsustainable. You, we, we need that. We shouldn't reject that. Be so prideful to push that away. Blessed are the wounds of a friend. But Jethro makes this observation. He says, you are not able to do it alone. Verse 19 now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. He says, you're still doing this. You're not just opting out here. But then he tacks on to this, the more sustainable way to do this. Verse 21, moreover, look 
for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. He says, what you need is men who fear God, men who are trustworthy, who hate bribes. And you're going to place them over thousands, over hundreds, over fifty, over tens. And that is how this is going to be more sustainable. Verse 22 says, And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. But any smaller, small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you. And they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this, people also will go to their place in peace. He says, you're still going to do this. You're still going to do what you're called to do, Moses. But you're not going to do it alone. You're going to handle some of the bigger disputes, some of the bigger things that need your wisdom and your judgment. But you're going to let a team of qualified men handle some of these smaller issues. Let them bear the burden with you. This is too heavy for you to handle this alone. So Jethro pitches his plan and then Moses responds. Verse 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said, which as a father of two daughters is something that I will read at their weddings one day to say, Listen to the voice of his father-in-law, did all that he said while winking at those grooms. Verse 25, Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. So he listens to the advice of Jethro, and he implements this system that is more sustainable. And then what has to be a rare, one of the rarest of occurrences, he releases his father-in-law. All right, he doesn't beg him to go. He's like, I, I, he's had him stay. And he's like, okay, now you are free to go. And his father-in-law departs and goes back to his own country. So that's Jethro's visit. There's a lot going on there. What I want to do is spend some time in the back part of this. I want to look at three different truths that come out of this that still apply for us as Christians today, that are still wise and good. And then we'll look at one overarching theme that ties our stories together. So the first truth, order matters. Order matters. When I say order, I mean order, structure, bringing order to chaos, that type of order matters. I heard uh, a clinical psychologist named Jordan Peterson comment on this, which just for the record, if you like Jordan Peterson, just know this, he's not a Christian at all, at all. He's, he's kind of a sage at this point, a philosopher, but he's not a Christian, but he's been getting into Exodus lately, and he's been commenting on it, and I listened to some of it, and I was like, man, these are some really terrible observations, and some of it, it's clear that you're not a Christian and you're just grasping at straws. But he did make one observation that I thought, oh, actually, that, that was pretty on point. 
He said this is like one of the earliest examples that we have of an, of, of an ordered society. And that if you look at a lot of Western governments, they're, they're based off of an ordered system like this. They have heads over people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. That's order. And order matters. It's a theme that you don't just see in, in governments. It's a theme you see from the Old, Te- from Old Testament all the way into the New. That in Genesis 1, when God is creating and ordering the universe, there's intentional structure and order. You pull that thread all the way to this passage where he is using Jethro to order his people. You see this through the Old Testament law that we're getting ready to walk through in the coming weeks the order and structure of the Old Testament law, that they might be a people that reflect God's glory to the surrounding nations that do not know him. We're going to see order as you pull this thread all the way into the New Testament when Jesus establishes his church in order. God is a God of order. And order matters. It matters immensely. I'm coaching baseball again this year. Rookie ball which is a step above T-ball. I coached T-ball last year with my son. And uh, if you've ever coached T-ball, it is chaos. Four-year-olds and chaos. And if you don't have structure and order out the gate, which we didn't last year out the gate, it was wild to step in and bring order. And once you finally brought order to that chaos, the kids started to slowly pick up the game a little bit, some of the basics, and fall in love with the game. Order matters, and adults aren't much different than children. People of God had problems, had issues, they needed order, because without order, you have lawlessness. And God is not a God of lawlessness, he's a God of order. And they needed this ordered system that would help them be a people that ultimately results in how that passage Psalm 23 ends, peace. Order promotes peace. That is a good thing that we should absolutely embrace as Christians. We talk about this, that we need order in our lives. For those of us that have children, like you need order in your children's lives and our families. That that matters, that it matters that our kids have structure and order and, and, and discipline. It is good for them. We want our children to to grow up and to be Jesus-loving, competent, ordered, structured adults. That's a good thing that we should hold out for our families, that there's order within the church. And that matters, and how we assemble as the body of Christ matters. We talk about in our church that we are an elder-led church. There are four elders, pastors, myself, Chet, Matt, Rass. It's elder-led, that it's deacon-served. We have deacons who are servant leaders, that it's congregational affirming as the authority resides in the collective body of Christ. That order and how we assemble ourselves matters. The order matters in how we worship on a Sunday. Because disordered worship isn't good. That's what Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 14 when he sees a church that is disordered in how they worship. And he says, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And then he goes on to give advice on how they're to structure their worship. Order matters. From our families, from our lives, from the church, 
I mean, order matters on a, on a government level. Go, that's one thing you see in the New Testament, that the government is a social good that God has given that helps restrain evil. Now, there's plenty of disagreements on how much government. You can have that debate. But unless you're an anarchist, which is clearly outside the bounds and the will of God, it is a good, and it brings order. God is a God of order. And within order and how much order matters for God's people requires leadership, but it also requires submission within that order, right? That's one of the reasons that we, we talk about submission in the home, submission in uh, the church, submission uh, uh, in local governing authorities that matters. Now, we as free Americans don't like that idea. That's something as Western individualists, we don't like that idea. I remember when I was 18, I was being recruited for the military. I was just like, I ain't taking orders from anybody. There's a lot of, a lot of arrogance to say, I don't do that. And then to learn as a new Christian, oh, wait a second, God calls us to, to submit, and that's part of his ordered world. So, if you do this, verse 23, God will direct you, you'll be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. Order promotes peace, and it is good. Second, leaders matter. Leaders matter. Verse 25, Moses chose able men out of out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, the chiefs of thousands of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. That God ordained that leaders step into the place of leadership that they were called to step into. This system of leadership that we see here in Exodus 18, it precedes what's ultimately going to be the leadership in the priesthood. And you follow that thread through the rest of the Old Testament into the New, that when Jesus begins his church, he chooses 12 Disciples, 12 apostles, 11 of whom will go on to lead the church. And then out of that, you continue to see this when Paul starts planting churches and he's writing to Titus in Titus 1.5. He says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order, his design, his desire, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. These churches needed leaders. And God chooses leaders to step into the leadership that he has created for them. And in that period, they had leaders who oversaw thousands, who also oversaw hundreds and fifties and tens. This leadership was necessary. And you see multiple levels of it. That God's order is dependent upon leaders stepping into the leadership that he has ordained for them to step into. And it is good. That, that leadership is a good gift that he's given us. It's the reason why that we have elders here, and not just one. We have four of us. That we have leaders as a plurality that bear this load together. And it confuses people sometimes because we, first of all, that word elder, especially if you didn't grow up, if, especially if you didn't grow up Presbyterian, the word elder can throw people off. Like, what are you talking about, are you Mormon? Um, the Bible uses it interchangeably with pastors, so that's what we do, okay? We have multiple elders that lead the church together, and that leadership matters. We have deacons in our church that assist us in the work of ministry, 
that have different servant service areas that they lead in. And that's unbelievably helpful. We have deacons who serve in Kid City. We have deacons who serve in host team and community groups. And all that matters immensely. Because if, if we wanted to do it all ourselves, we'd implode. It's too much. We have community group leaders who bear the load on a regular basis. Leadership matters, and it is good. And it's also something that you should pray for. You should pray for your leaders. If you're in a group, you should pray for your group leaders, because leadership is hard. You should pray for your pastors, because we need your prayers. We lead. You should pray even beyond the church for your governing authorities, as the Bible commands us to do. You should pray for leadership, because leadership is difficult. But it is good. And God wants leaders. So let me address one thing head on really quickly that I don't want us to miss coming out of this. That Moses specifically raises up men to be leaders. So this is something that we've taught and we'll continue to teach. That God's design for humanity is that men would step up into the roles of leaders that he calls us to. And that when we do this, when we step into the leadership that God calls us to, that ultimately is that as it shows in this passage, results in peace. The world is better when men step in to that type of leadership. The problem is, is that culturally right now, we're not. That in America, there's so many problems. If you can read study after study and, and see stat after stat, that shows how men in our culture are not stepping into the leadership that God has called us to. And it's resulted in broken families. It's resulted in broken lives. Leadership matters, especially for men. As men, for those of us that have families and have children, that means that we need to step into the leadership that God calls us to in the family. We have the unbelievably unique opportunity to be a force for good in our children's lives, to promote a peace that surpasses all understanding and resounds into eternity. We have that opportunity in front of us. It's one of the reasons that we talk about reading the Bible with our children and praying with our children because God has designed you as a leader in their life to promote what is ultimately good, Christ, in their lives. And that if we're not doing that, to be very blunt, we're failing. And there's grace for our, our failures, absolutely. But that, that doesn't mean that we don't actually step into this and repent of where we have failed so that we can be the leadership that our kids need. God has designed us to be leaders in families, for those of us that have families. For those of you who are married, that means you need to lead in marriage. And the example of leading in marriage is loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's it. And we need to step into that. And I look in the mirror on this one, that God has called us to love our wives with this unbelievable, sacrificial love that he has called us to. And when you do this, you have the opportunity of having a joyful home that has peace. And where we misstep, we lean into his grace, and we walk it out in repentance because leadership matters in our homes. It matters, I'll give you one more, just, it matters in the workplace. Workplaces in America need men who will lead. Goodness gracious. I mean, women are killing it in the workplace. They're killing it at every level. They're killing it in K-12. 
For those who go to college, they're killing it in college. And the workplace, they're killing it in the workplace. And the stats right now on younger men that are between 18 and 24 are not doing anything is startling. And we as Christians get the opportunity to be men that step into that void and be a city on a hill. That you step into the work that God has called you to do. And that doesn't mean that you'll be a CEO who oversees thousands. You might be. You might oversee hundreds or fifties or tens or whomever. But that does mean that you step into the leadership that God has called you to and the workplace and reflect what it means to work unto the Lord. It matters. And it's lacking. And we get the opportunity to promote peace in our culture and the way that we step into. Don't miss that he calls men to lead, and we desperately need to own that. Last thing, we don't just need leaders, we need leaders who have character. Character matters. It's the third thing I want us to see is this, character matters. He says in verse 21, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. He says, you need men who fear God. And that's not just a phrase that gets thrown around as, a, as, a, as this, this person's a God fear. This is someone who fears God. And I'm not just talking about the reverent worship type of fear. No, that actually fears the power of God so much so that we be a people that do what is right, that are trustworthy, that hate bribes. Character matters immensely. And God wants leaders who have character. And it's the reason why, when you look at the story of how Samuel chooses David in 1 Samuel, that in 1 Samuel 16, 7, after Saul has been rejected as a leader, verse 7 it says, For the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, I've rejected Saul, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but hear this, the Lord looks on the heart. That God cares about character. Character trumps competency every day and twice on Sunday. Character unbelievably matters. It is the reason why when you look at 1 Timothy 3 and the qualifications for elders and for deacons that overwhelmingly those qualifications are character driven. Because if God has people leading his church that don't have the character, it is a disaster. And I know many of you listen to the Rise and Fall of, Mod, of Mars Hill podcast last year when it came out. And, you know, I, it was a difficult one for me because I actually grew up as a young Christian listening to Mark Driscoll and really appreciated some of the things that I, that I heard. It was also difficult because one of my former pastors is the one who did that podcast. And I didn't like some of the editorial angles that he chose and some of the gossipy stuff that came out of it. But there's one thing that was very clear in listening to that is that man had no business being an elder. And no business being a pastor because he lacked character. And character trumps competency. It matters. We, we need to believe that. We, we should believe that. We should be looking for that in our own lives. We should so value character over 
over so many things. I, I, have, I have two main goals for my children. I have other ones, but like they're so far beneath these two, it's not even funny. I want my kids to love Jesus. And then second, I want them to be virtuous people. I want them to have character. I want them to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Everything else is so far beneath that, it's not even funny. And I, I'm serious. They, they could choose whatever they want to do. They could work in sanitation. They could be a surgeon. I don't care. That's so insignificant. Our culture inverts that and says that what you do and the career you take and who you turn out to be is so much of a paramount importance that is so far beneath the concern of the Scriptures in comparison to faith in Jesus and virtue. It's not even funny because character, it matters. And we need to believe that. And it was so important for the nation of Israel to have leaders who had it. And when Moses finds these men of character, and he establishes them as leaders to judge the people so that they can have this ordered nation, he promotes peace. He says, if you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Which means that Jethro fixes it. He did it, you guys. If you, I don't want to spoil the rest of Exodus for you, but it goes rather well. That the people joyfully receive the law with obedient hearts. That they don't take the gold that God literally earned for them out of the Egyptians' hands and melt that down into an idol and worship that. That they don't go into the promised land. No, you, you know how this story goes. But if you read ahead, that it's still not enough. That the advice that they receive from Jethro is not enough. And that is because good advice on its own, it cannot save, it cannot redeem, it cannot call us to be the people that God has called us to be. Because Moses, y'all, Moses was the prophet of prophets in the Old Testament. He was the Michael Jordan of prophets. They look back, and Moses was it. And Moses and his proxies and his, and his leaders could scarcely restrain the people from absolutely rebelling against the people of God, let alone themselves joining in it. And if Moses couldn't do it with this unbelievably good advice, then boy, oh boy, good advice is not enough. We need something more than advice. We need a perfect judge. We need the judge and the leader who, unlike Moses, can actually bear the weight of judgment. We need a man who has ultimate and perfect character, who comes to bring about his kingdom of order and everlasting peace. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is ultimately our only hope. The people in this story did not have Christ. And that is the difference between us and them. That is the difference in what ties our stories together. The advice of Jethro is good. It is. This is some solid advice. But a good advice and all the strategies in the world, it's not enough and it never will be. Listen, I, right now I love the season that our church is in. I do. There's so much good that's going on. I love our groups are growing I mean, what's happening in Kid City right now is just awesome. 
I'm seeing people that are hungry, that are, are, are loving Jesus and inviting people to come and experience Christ. I see people that are reading their Bibles. I see all kinds of people of character stepping up into leadership. It's incredible. And if we think for a second that that is what's going to guide us alone, we are mistaken. It is not enough. The only hope we have is Christ. If Moses could not do this by his strategy and his work and his effort, then we don't have a shot. But thank you, Jesus, that we have him. And that ultimately, through believing in the one who obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf, who took on judgment on himself on the cross, to set apart a people who reflect his glory as an ordered church with godly leaders, I'm thankful that he's our chief shepherd. And I'm thankful that we have him. So yes, we will look at these principles. We'll look at this advice. And we'll absolutely seek to be a people that apply it. But we won't miss for a moment who our chief shepherd is. And who our only hope is in the middle of all this. The band's going to come up and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And we're going to be reminded of who our God is and what he has done for us. So that we can be the people that God has called us to be. Then on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that was broken for you. That he took the cup, which was the cup of the new covenant. He said, this is my blood that was shed for you. That as often as you eat and drink this, you proclaim my death until I return. That we as Christians get to come to the table, hearing the word, seeing our shortcomings, and saying, thank you, Jesus, that you're enough. And we get to come to the table joyfully, worshiping Christ. So come to the table when you are ready. There's gluten-free back in that corner over there. If you're not a Christian, we don't want you to take part in the Lord's Supper. We want Christ for you. So you can apply all the good advice that you want to in your life. You can do all the different adjustments. You can do all the different moral changes. But if your hope isn't completely and fully in Christ and Christ alone, you'll never understand what it means to be his people, and you'll never understand what it means to tap into this everlasting peace that he wants for us. So don't take part in this. Take part in Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us receive your word. That we'd be a people that see you as our only hope. And out of that hope, would see some of the things that are so good about Jethro's advice in this chapter. We'd see order, leadership, character as unbelievable good things that you've given us, Jethro. And that we'd be an obedient, an obedient people in stepping into them. And if there's anyone here that has not tasted and seen that you were good, that has not placed their only hope in you, pray that you would bring them to faith in you right now in Jesus name